I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 14. Continue trying to preach through one psalm a month. I think I mentioned before, it's really hard not to try to preach a psalm every week. I'm really coming to enjoy, I think, preaching through the psalms more than just about anything, but it takes about a month to try to... These, these, are, these are deep lyrics, you know. Um, so anyways, this evening we come uh, to the 14th psalm. To the choir master of David... The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who do good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. This is... God's word. Let's pray and ask that he uh, open our eyes to understand his word. Our gracious God and Father, um, as we hear these words, uh, as they attest to um, uh, the depravity of human nature, we pray that you would uh, not cause us to recoil back from these difficult sayings, but that we would give due diligence to what is said and consider uh, what is required, given the fact uh, that none are righteous, and that you are holy. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to consider the scenario that you were to go down to the local record shop. There's one uh, there in downtown Corvallis, and you were to purchase a greatest hits album of one of your favorite classic bands. As you bring home this record, you look on the track listing on the back, you find that the same song is repeated, shows up on this greatest hits album multiple times. At the very least, I think you would, it would cause you to stop and ask why. Why, when there's such a limited amount of space that you can put on this record, or CD, or MP3, whatever it is that you, uh, you use, why would this particular band include the same song twice? Now, the answer might be simple. Uh, you know, I have a bunch of, uh, a number of Bob Dylan records, and some of these latest uh, albums that have been coming out include multiple studio outtakes of the same song. Or perhaps a coveted live version of one of their greatest hits. But seeing the same tune twice, I think at the very least signifies that this song was and is to be considered an important milestone in the history of that particular band. Why am I talking about this? What we find is the same is true this evening with Psalm 14. Because what you'll find is that this song is identical with Psalm 53. You turn to Psalm 53, you find it's the exact same song in nearly every respect. Verse 5 is slightly different, and there is a different uh, superscript. So we have to ask ourselves, why would the Lord, in his providence, give us the same song twice? Whatever this psalm is teaching us, clearly 
It must be important. So I think we should pay careful attention to what it says. In other words, this isn't simply a, uh, a, a B-track. You know, this, is, this is a greatest hit, so to speak. I'd like us to divide the psalm into two halves. First, we'll consider the matter of the fool in verses 1 to 3. And then secondly, the afflicted in verses 4 to 7. The fool in verses 1 to 3 and the afflicted in verses 4 to 7. The psalmist begins by speaking of the fool, quite literally, uh, the worthless man. It is the worthless man. It is the good for nothing. It is, as one translator uh, has put it, it is the scoundrel who says in his heart that there is no God. It's a word used to uh, mark out and characterize the man whose conscience fails to conform to God's moral law. Here's a man who may profess something outwardly, but in his heart, he continues to tell himself that God does not exist so that he can try to convince himself that he doesn't have to play by God's own rules. He is what we might call a practical atheist. Outwardly, he might profess faith in the one true God, but inwardly, it's not how he acts. He acts as if God is not. He so orders his thoughts as though he will not have to give account of the coming judgment We've seen it before as we've been working our way through the Proverbs in the evenings as well, that the wise are guided by the fear of the Lord. However, the fool figures nothing into his moral calculus regarding the Holy One of Israel. God is far from his thoughts. It's the exact opposite of the wise man where the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the fear of Yahweh is the very first thing as the wise man considers all that he does. The fool is like the driver who refuses to heed the contours of the road, the yellow and white lane markers, the traffic lights, and even the speed limit. He does what he wishes, when he wishes, and sees himself as accountable to none. Sure, you might see this type of driver occasionally obey the traffic light, but it's only because he wants to and not because he feels like he has to. Here stands the fool rotten to the core. It's a matter of the heart. His inward corruption has borne fruit in outward abominations. It's a a rather tense word that the psalmist gives. What are these abominations that the psalmist has in mind? Well, if you remember that this is a psalm of David, here's a man who is a man after God's own heart. Here's a man who contemplates God's moral law. And as the king of Israel was to make a copy of the book of Deuteronomy, the moral law of God, so I think we can rightly ascertain that David has in view those things that God calls an abomination in Scripture. It's the same thing that the later prophets will call an abomination in Scripture. So to know what David means by abominable deeds, we must turn not to what our present society considers an abomination, as if they consider anything an abomination these days, but rather we must let our thoughts be guided by God's Word as the one who has spoken. If you were to do a word search, you would find that the Hebrew word there for abomination occurs nearly 150 times in the Old Testament. 
I'm not going to go through every one bit by bit, but I think we can cluster um, these various categories. Here is a word that describes not simply the outward actions, but the inner dispositions of a man. Not just the inner disposition, though, it describes the whole man. Remember what Proverbs 6 says, that there are six things that the Lord hates and seven that are an abomination to him. What are they? They are haughty eyes, a lying tongue, a heart that devises evil, feet that run towards bloodshed, one that breathes lies, hands that sow discord. Notice in all seven cases it deals with a particular facet of the human body, the eyes, the tongue, the feet, the hands, the heart, even their very breath. It is a total picture of the depravity of man. We might call it an extensive depravity as there is no facet of man that remains untouched by this twisted disposition. There is no commandment that remains easily kept by sinful humanity. You read through the Old Testament, the Lord uses abomination to describe idolatry. That is to say, the worship of false gods, not just in private, but also the corruption of public worship. It's not just the worship of false gods, but it's also the false worship of the true God. In First and Second Kings, it is simply referred to as this, the sin. Thus, such and such king of Israel committed the sin, where they continued worshiping the Lord according to ways that the Lord had not prescribed, or that they had worshiped Him not according to the ways that He had prescribed. Not letting Scripture regulate the very contours of the honor and worship that is due the Lord's name by allowing and importing pagan practices into the life of the people of God. According to Proverbs 15.8, abominable in God's sight is the man who treats religion as a lucky rabbit's foot, as a talisman that he might continue in sin. You see this in the book of Jeremiah where the people will say, the temple, the temple, the temple. The equivalent of what we might find today where somebody says, well, there's Fat Tuesday. Right? Tuesday, here's the day to commit all your sin the night before Lent. As you see among Catholics, but Catholics are not the only ones who do this. We find Protestants doing the same thing. How many of us have heard somebody say, seriously, and uh, you know, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. Uh, living by what we might call a sloppy, agape type lifestyle, where there's no fear of the Lord. They can do whatever it is that they want because they know all they have to do is just say, oh, gee, I'm sorry. And everything's going to be okay. It's kind of this, this fire insurance. Treating the, the, the word of God, the gospel of Christ, as a get out of hell free card. Third commandment calls it bearing God's name in vain. Failing to let the fear of the Lord transform us from within regarding those things that we love and the things that we choose, the things that we do. The Lord speaks of uh, the abomination regarding those who indulge in public and private sins and profaning the Lord's day. It's an abomination in the Lord's eyes to fail to honor lawful authorities. In many ways, abominable are the works of of the Bible teachers who twist Scripture to serve their own ends, who fail to treat the wounds of sin found in the sheep as wounds. You'll find this in Ezekiel. You'll find this in Jeremiah, uh, the, the false shepherds of Israel who say, ah, oh, you don't have to worry about your sin. It's no big deal. Repentance is not necessary. 
the Lord considers it an abomination. For the religious authorities who fail to proclaim that salvation is holy of the Lord, that there is free mercy found in Christ if you but turn to Him. The Lord calls the shepherds of Israel an abomination who tell those sheep that repentance is no big deal and that the final judgment is nothing to dread. You find that in Jeremiah chapter 8. Abominable are all sorts of sexual immorality, lewdness, transvestitism, prostitution, cultic sexual practices, uh, marrying one who has been unlawfully divorced, marrying an unbeliever. It's a major theme in Ezra and Nehemiah. Adulteries. Jeremiah condemns the, what he calls the lustful neighings of the people of God, those insatiable practices. Abominable are the works of incest, rape, and homosexuality. Abominable are murderous acts as, such as child sacrifice, which the Lord condemns. The Lord calls theft an abomination. Not just theft as we see among bandits and robbers, but theft or as we see in dishonest business practices, the establishing of false scales. Those who oppress the poor and needy, be it the government or the rich, The man who extorts the foreigner in his midst because he has no recourse for safety. The man who lends at interest. And the man even who refuses to pay back what he has borrowed. Abominable in God's eyes are liars. Those who gossip between friends. Those who perjure in the courts. Those who brag and boast. Who flatter and yet nurture hate in their heart. Even the prayer of the man who prays to God who still refuses to heed God's law, the Lord calls an abomination. It is the perverse heart, evil in its intent, evil in its plans, evil in its schemes, evil in its execution. Abominable is God's declaration of judgment upon the heart of man who allows folly to determine the course of his life rather than the fear of the Lord. The reason I kind of describe these is to show you that the word abomination doesn't happen just a few times. We see how this is a term that runs through the course of the Old Testament, and it describes so much of what you know, it even convicts my own heart reading these things. But I think one of the things we should recognize is that this is not a problem that's restricted to one particular race or socioeconomic bracket. I think it's one of the problems with our current culture. They fail to get at the heart of the matter. So many people want to pin all the blame on one particular group. They want to blame it on the rich or the poor, the black or the white, the Republican or the Democrat, the man or the woman. But in all of these, they have failed to recognize that this depravity is a universal problem. It courses through the veins of every man, woman, and child. No facet of any human soul remains untouched by the stain of sin. There is no age group that is exempt from this holy proclamation of judgment. Think of what David says in Psalm 58, the wicked are estranged from the womb. 
Psalm 51 recognizes that he too is not exempt from this universal condemnation in sin. My mother conceived me, he says. He's not saying that he was conceived out of wedlock. You read First and Second Samuel, you'll find that's not the case. He's the, the youngest of six in a very godly family. Rather, the point he is making is that there has not been a moment in his life, even from the womb, where he has not known the pull and the weight of sin that stains his very soul. Sin has corrupted even David inside and out. The opening verses of this psalm attest the universal condition of sin that the Lord seeks out to see if there are any who seek Him. You see that there in verse 2. And among the children of man, literally among the children of Adam, He finds none who seek Him out. That there is no one who practices good, not one soul. No one is exempt from this. Not you, not me, not the Pope, not Mother Teresa, not Billy Graham. There is none righteous. You know, I think as an aside, we might say that this is the problem of the, for many of you who remember this, the the seeker-sensitive model of the mid-90s of church growth and church practice. And, you know, you want to commend people for wanting to find ways to bring people in. But, but it, it starts on a faulty foot because it assumes that they're people who are seeking the one true God. Yet, if we were to take uh, the message here of Psalm 14, which is replicated once more in Psalm 53, there is none who are righteous. There are none who seek after God. The point is this. Man in his natural state hates the God who is. Man in his natural state may want a God, but he doesn't want the one true God. And so he carves and concocts an image of God after his or her own likeness, who caters to his own fancies, desires, and perhaps even oh, his own idiosyncratic moral convictions. How many people that we know are unbelievers who do have a moral standard, but that the moral standard happens to be such that they never kind of fall under the weight of, you know, they never fall outside the lines of their own standard. Here the psalmist says the Lord surveys the host of humanity and he comes up with nothing. There's not one who seeks him. No exceptions. Not even Israel is off the hook here. You might recognize the opening uh, words of this psalm because Paul himself cites it in Romans chapter 3. What's fascinating, and Calvin points this out in his commentary, is that that Paul is not using this psalm to, to speak of the universality of sin among the Gentiles. Paul actually uses this to prove that sin is a universal condition even among the people of God, even among those under the law. Not even those who attend church are exempt from this fundamental principle. Not even myself. Commenting on the psalm, Calvin writes this, those who abandon all sense of God from their thoughts... They're no longer able to distinguish between right and wrong or have any regard for honesty or any love for humanity. Isn't that the fruit of what we're seeing in the world around us? As the West is in the process of casting off God from their thoughts and overturning the foundations of a just society, they do so by rewriting the laws of society to accommodate the perversity of the sinful human heart. Like a gangrenous cancer, sin has infected all of humanity from head to toe. Where the heart 
proceeding from the heart, come all manner of pollution, filth, and wickedness. As Jesus says in Mark 7, this is what defiles a man, not what goes into the man, such as particular types of food, but what comes out of the man, the things that he says, the things that he does. There are none righteous, no exceptions. And yet at the same time, we have to recognize that that David here seems to identify two different classes of sinners. You see the fool that he speaks of in verses 1 to 3, but then he begins to speak of the fool who lays assault against the righteous. How are we to make sense of that? How is it the case that David could say that there are none righteous, that there are none who do good, and yet it is the wicked who lay assault upon the righteous? You follow me here? This is what's happening within the same psalm. Here is uh, the poet under inspiration of the Spirit causing us to contemplate human nature from the perspective of the fall and redemption. David confesses the problem of sin is a universal human condition. It extends to everyone. But for David here in verses 4 to 7, he also says that there are a brand of evildoers who devour the generation of the righteous. How is it that David can speak of the generation of the righteous if there are those, if there are none who are righteous? Again, do you follow me here? To best understand David's thoughts here, we might say that all humans are sinners, but that there are two classes of sinners. There is the, the fool, the unrepentant sinner. And then there is the repentant sinner. The one who, according to God's righteous judgment, is declared righteous. You see, the Psalms will speak of the righteousness of God in the same way that Paul speaks of the righteousness of God in Romans 1 to 3, the whole book of Romans. That though none have pursued God, there are some whom God has pursued. There are some whom God has subjected to Himself in mercy and in grace. And it is this class of sinner, the repentant sinner, the one redeemed by the blood of Christ, who continues to be assaulted by the wickedness of the age. Are you all following me here? Does that make sense? You see, the psalmist instructs us regarding the nature of the reality of sin, but not just in an abstract picture. He's doing so according to the contours of redemptive history. Here, the psalmist does not leave us without hope. There are sinners who can, in fact, be called righteous. It's the very message of Leviticus, isn't it? How is it that a holy God can dwell in the midst of sinners? The answer is simple, Leviticus tells us. It is by the death of a vicarious substitutionary substitute. One who is without sin, who dies in the place of the sinner. Only then are the people of God made fit to enter the presence of a holy God. And yet we continue to read Leviticus and the Psalms and elsewhere. What benefits attend such type of sacrifice, such a substitutionary death? Well, we find not just the pardon of sin, but also communion with God and also the promise of a place of refuge. That there is, in fact, one who will defend the people of God against the schemes of the wicked. You see, it is from this particular vantage point that David prays. He is a sinner just like the rest of mankind. You don't believe me? Read Psalm 51. 
Here's an adulterer and a murderer, perhaps even worse. Despite the heinousness of his sins, he comes to delight in the rich mercy that God freely gives because the Lord provides mercy to all who confess their sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as David prays, he looks upon uh, the host of the people of God and he sees as his heart is in turmoil within him that the wicked are devouring his flock. It seems as though David here, his concern is not with the Gentiles seeking to devour Israel, but wolves within the midst. I think this is why Paul is able to cite this psalm in Psalm 53 to speak of how sin permeates uh, even the Jews, as he had already talked about how sin permeates the Gentiles in chapters 1 uh, and 2. Here we find wolves in the midst preying upon the weak, jackals with unbridled hunger. Here David's prayer echoes the lament of the prophet Micah, who compares such evildoers as ravenous cannibals. Listen here to Micah chapter 3. Here, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off of my people and their flesh from off of their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them, who break their bones into pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. These are hard words to hear, but this is the prayer and the lament of the prophet, and it echoes so much of what David is lamenting as he sees the people of God being subjected uh, to wolves in camouflage. Camouflage of wool. There are tyrants in the gates, as Calvin says, commenting on this psalm. Wolves in the midst, gobbling up Christ's precious lambs without remorse, without any cognizance that they have done anything wrong, and all in open defiance of the Maker of heaven and earth, as they continually try to tell themselves that He is not there, therefore they can do whatever they want. They can act however they please without reprisal. And yet in all their fury, for all the inner conversations that they have, that there is no God who will call them to account, Here they are said, and elsewhere they are said as well, to be in a continued state of unease, of paranoia, and of fear. Elsewhere the psalmist will say they they jump at the slightest rustling of a leaf. As we're going through Matthew's Gospel in the mornings, consider how paranoid a man Herod is. A man who, according to Josephus, murders several of his own children and one of his nine wives to try to maintain control of the throne. Why is it the wicked will continually tell themselves that there is no God and yet the very mention of God causes them to tremble with fear? We think of the words of Shakespeare and we think, thou dost protest too much. It's this attempt to continue to try to convince themselves of a reality that is, in fact, a mere illusion. Though they try and try to sear their conscience, to render their own conscience deaf to the whispers of the coming judgment, although they continually try to suppress the truth by their own wickedness, on the last day, it will be said that they will remain without excuse. 
That is Romans 1 in a nutshell, which Paul, by the way, uses the Psalms to defend that particular argument. Because try and try that they, as they do to convince themselves that there is no God in verse 5, we are told, oh, they know. They know that the Lord is with the generation of the righteous. The afflicted make the Lord their refuge. The wicked scoff at their plans, but the Lord will not be mocked. Despite the fact that, that wolves surround David, despite the abominable depravity that courses through the veins of every man, woman, and child, nevertheless, David rejoices. How many of us could do that to, 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 to have a, an honest look at the situation in which our present society is in and be able to rejoice while at the same time mourn? It's not either or for David. He laments over the fact that the state of Israel has come to such a place as this, and yet he rejoices because he longs for the day, and he knows that there is coming a day when salvation will come from Zion. When, as verse 7 tells us, the Lord will restore uh, the condition of his people. We have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? That the Lord will restore the condition of his people. We find that phrase repeated in Psalm chapter 85 and elaborates on it further still. Listen to this is Psalm 85, 12. O Lord, you have shown favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. See, the end to the captivity of which David speaks, the end to the exile which he uh, says will uh, uh, befall Israel. It's the same thing that Moses uh, foretold that would happen to the nation of Israel. The end of that captivity, the end of that Israel is found not simply in the return of Israel to their homeland. It's not thinking heavenly minded enough. Rather, the end of that captivity is found in the forgiveness of sin. See, David anticipates salvation as a twofold deliverance. One, deliverance from the wicked, yes. But David recognizes that if sin is as extensive as Psalm 14 claims it is, then there is still a greater deliverance that is needed. Our problem is not simply, not even most importantly, the person who sits in the seat of power in the government. The biggest problem is our own sin and the curse of sin that is due us. That is why David speaks of the salvation as this twofold deliverance. A deliverance from the wicked out there, yes, but also deliverance from the wicked within. And this is the very reason Christ was born. Even as we've heard in the morning sermons, the reason that uh, uh, Joseph was to call the Messiah Jesus was to demonstrate this because Christ has come to deliver us from our sins. To save us from our sins. See, the salvation from this universal human condition is only found in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we look back on the psalm and, and we look and reflect on it, we have to ask ourselves, what is so special about this psalm? Now, of course, I think that's a question we can ask every psalm because every psalm is part of God's Word. But, but why this one? And, and why do we find the same psalm, virtually the same psalm, included twice in the Psalter? Let me commend this to you 
uh, for your contemplation. Psalm 14 gives us an unfiltered portrait of the extensiveness of human sin in the heart. It provides a critical diagnosis of human psychology as the fruit of Adam's rebellion. And it demonstrates that sin is not a problem restricted to one particular race, class, gender, or age group, but rather it is endemic to the whole host of the human race. In other words, the psalm is laying down principles that are important enough that the Lord would include it twice in His greatest hits album, as it were. Perhaps we need to take this to heart. And so I think this particular uh, principle has particular significance in, in three, three particular ways, we could say, in, in trying to apply this and, and understand this psalm as it relates to the life of the people of God. First, we can say this, that Psalm 14 is significant as it regards the worship of the church. Right? If no one is seeking after God, then the seeker-sensitive model is a failed project. And I'm not, I'm not trying to call out other people. I'm really not. What I'm saying is, we cannot alter the worship of God to cater to the whims of men in hopes that they'll come in greater droves. Again, such was the sin of the northern kingdom of First and Second Kings. Rather, we might say that the church's task remains the same, to proclaim the nature of sin and the judgment that is coming upon sin and the free salvation that is given to sinners, to all who repent and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I think this impacts not just the worship of the church, but also the mission of the church. We must take human nature seriously. In his letter to Titus, Paul writes giving counsel on how to set up a new church plant in a highly immoral society there on the island of Crete. And Paul writes this, he says this to Titus, he says, well, there are many rebellious men, there are empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families. They're teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. And then Paul says this, and, and I'm bringing this out because this is a particular passage that has come under scrutiny in the wider media over the past year or two. Paul says this, he says, well, just as the Cretans say of their own, all Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Is Paul simply being a racist here? No, I, I think those who want to call Paul a racist on this point fail to understand the fundamental principle that Paul is laying down. Paul is rather exemplifying a universal truth and applying it to a specific context. And in doing so, as he writes to Titus, he actually employs the language of Psalm 14 when he says, these people profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. In other words, they are what? They are practical atheists. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. This is why it's so important that the mission of the church uses the categories of Scripture rather than contemporary categories and engaging with the reality of sin because if, as soon as we try to alter the categories that the Bible gives us, we begin to distort the true picture. 
The mission of the church must recognize the universality of sin that resides in the hearts of those whom we seek to evangelize. But this is an important point, not just as we consider the people out there. We also have to consider the people in this room, and it leads us to the final significant feature, I think, of Psalm 14, as this relates to the church's governance. And it's the... said this before, there's a reason I am Presbyterian. I am Presbyterian by conviction. You want to know why? Because I know my human heart and I am a sinner just as much as you are. And so there must be a mechanism to deal with sin, even sin among those in the leadership. God forbid that ever happen here. And yet, at the same time, we have to have that mechanism in place. How many times do we see in the news story after story after story of of a pastor or a priest abusing their position of power to harm the flock of Christ, and they are left in such position that they don't have to be held accountable to anybody? There is only one king in the church, That king is not the Pope, and that king is not Charles Williams. That king is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if sin is as universal as Scripture says it is, there must be a mechanism in place to keep me from harming you and to have a recourse of action to where I have to give an account for my sin that I have committed against you and for your sin if you ever sin against me. What wisdom is there in this form of government that Christ has given His church? One that takes into full account the nature and extensiveness of human depravity. May the Lord give us the grace to repent when needed as we consider how the Lord uses His government in His church to help bring about that repentance. And May we be diligent not to let sin disrupt the church's worship or its mission. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word, and we ask that You uh, would uh, cause us to tremble with fear as we come to see the depth of sin in our own hearts as we contemplate the psalm, uh, but that we would not be left to despair, but that we would know that there is a righteousness that is uh, given apart from works, a righteousness that is received through faith and faith alone the Lord Jesus Christ. Let you, uh, we pray, be our rock and our hope and our fortress. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.